Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. For politicians, speaking to voters is an important part of democracy. Political parties spend a lot of time researching public values and opinions in order to craft statements that will resonate with their voters and challenge non-voters to consider a different point of view. Effective marketing can go a long way towards the success of a political campaign. By saying the right things and positioning arguments in a certain way, politicians can create a brand image that can influence public perceptions and ultimately win votes. I'm joined today by two NTU researchers, Dr. Colin Alexander, Senior Lecturer in Political Communications, and Dr. Chris Pitch, Senior Lecturer in Nottingham Business School, to discuss the role of marketing in politics and whether it has the power to sway public opinion here in Britain. So thanks both of you for joining us. Um, Colin, can you talk to me a bit about your background? Tell us about your research area as well. So I joined NTU in September 2013, and my interest is really in, as you say, political communications, but particularly looking at things like propaganda and the role of propaganda in modern society. And I think that perhaps people have an, an inclination that propaganda is something that happens externally from their political world. But my, I guess my public role is to try and encourage people to think more clearly about propaganda in their immediate lives and the role that um, manipulation strategies by the powerful play in time to get them to think about certain things and think in certain ways about certain things. Chris, um, can you talk to me a bit about, again, your area of work and your background? Yeah, so I joined in July 2010, so just over 10 years now. And uh, no, 2012 um, and my kind of research background is uh, political branding so and political marketing so basically the application of marketing concepts theories and frameworks to politics so a lot of overlap uh, with Colin's work but um, I've always been fascinated how political parties candidates campaigns can all be seen as brands and often use like I say marketing and branding strategies and tactics in order to try and position themselves and communicate and engage voters and that's something that I've kind of worked on for for many years like I say from 2012 onwards and and look at I've been looking at this in from different contexts and settings as well so not only from the kind of traditional UK perspective um, and uh, parliamentary systems but also settings uh, like Iceland, uh, India, um, you name it you know many many different different contexts and settings which obviously then it makes us question the application of concepts and theories to to politics. So how does marketing actually fit into politics? Um, And how does marketing affect how people feel about politics, especially here in the UK? To come back on what Chris said there, I think Chris looks at this in more of a kind of practical sense of this is how to do this. This is how to engage and this is how to communicate. And where my research comes in is to say, well, should this be the case? And indeed, what is perhaps the fallout from it? So your question about like what actually happens here. Well, one of the problems with political branding and political marketing is that rather than, well, I think it changes the way in which voters or potential voters actually engage with politics. What you end up with is rather than um, a politician 
trying to appeal to voters, you get a, there's a sense of falsehood which begins to emerge because the brand has become, it's too, it's too linear, perhaps, and that the person doesn't necessarily come across as a full human being. They come across as a sort of branded concept. And so if you think about a basic human being, we have um, skills, we have attributes, we also have prejudices and we also have flaws. And what the branding is trying to do is to eradicate any sense of anybody having, saying anything controversial, for example, or indeed doing something which might not appeal to the mainstream. So what you find with branding is that they are trying to appeal to everybody and yet nobody at the same time. And this can sometimes create a sense of political apathy within the voters. Yeah, I think um, that's that's the juxtaposition, really. That yeah, branding has all kind of always been designed to try and allow products, services, and people to kind of stand out against their competitors. But the more that, like, say, you think about it, and they're kind of using these concepts, theories, and frameworks, they're all kind of following the same rule book. So in a way, they're starting to they, they're not differentiating themselves at all. They they in a way start to look exactly like their competitor. So in a way, it is that kind of juxtaposition that yeah we're, we're applying branding but then it it, it can confuse voters but uh, some recent research i've been doing in in jersey for example and um, many disengaged voters out there are kind of crying out for more um clearer communication clearer kind of ideas of what their politicians stand for so they look towards branding and marketing communications as a way to try and hopefully improve and strengthen their engagement in future elections whether that will, if that you know actually happens, it'll be great. But that's what they're kind of calling out for. Um, so it's interesting, you, you know. And like I say, if if, you, if it can be used, or is it going to alienate? Like Colin said, it's it's interesting because when you have a politician who then thinks, well, okay, I need to communicate better, inverted commas, better. They think, well, I'm now going to turn to these kind of corporate communications professionals who are going to market me and brand me better when actually what they need to do is just be more authentic mm. and take away those layers of bureaucracy around their communication. But then, of course, that comes with risks and particularly the, the various sort of party hierarchies, which may feel as though that's not appropriate for them. So you have, I guess, the concept of the whip within parties where everybody is meant to be, at least for the most part, on point about certain issues even if they personally agree with them or not. But what that really leads to is this kind of frustration with the voters, with politics. And also just more generally, it takes us into a, a broader philosophical question about the role of truth and falsehood in society and the acceptability of that. And that's something that I think has moved quite a bit with the digital age because we have all become propagandists now. You go on your Facebook, you go on your Instagram, you go on your Twitter accounts, and you're essentially saying something which is usually a half-truth or a, um, an extenuation of the truth. You're not necessarily saying a falsehood. But what I think has happened with some of what my research looks at is the extent to which we accept propaganda, we accept manipulation by others because we're doing it ourselves. So it's no longer kind of an us and them um, playing field, if you like. So are we sort of saying there's not really... What's the difference then between this political marketing and propaganda? Are we saying that there isn't much? Well, from my perspective, I have argued many times that words like advertising, branding, um, marketing, public relations, you can keep going with this stuff. Right? 
they're all words that emerge in the, the mid-1900s, the sort of mid-20th century, as alternative words to propaganda, used because propaganda becomes tainted with neg negative connotations, particularly after, the, um, particularly after the Second World War and the use of it um, ex extensively by the Nazis in order to corrupt the German public into believing that, well, I think we all know this story, that certain things were acceptable, which really we would say are mo morally bankrupt, if you like. I would agree. And, you know, you just have to look back at the kind of history of not only marketing and branding. For years, politicians have always used these different tactics, these different strategies, but they don't necessarily always like to use the word marketing or branding. They see it as a dirty word or as if it's some dark arts. But, going, you know, you go back to the 1900s, they're all using different uh, tactics, like putting kind of um, pictures of themselves in cigarette packets, posters, public speaking, they're just different forms or different tactics of marketing and communication. So it's, I think what's happened over the last, say, 20, 30, 40 years, it's that sophistication, that specialism, and we're all using these kind of, these terms now, marketing, communications, or branding, and it's become much more, like I say, um, polished or professional, as it were, or, or, or consistent. And I guess also there's so many more avenues of getting that information out there that didn't exist many years ago. Oh, gosh, you just have to look at kind of the, the rise of social media and how kind of um, that's kind of been used by political parties, candidates, um, campaign groups, lobby groups, you know, they, you name it, they all use these different online and offline tactics to try and engage voters mm -hmm. and try and put their message across, persuade, basically, if you boil down, it's all about trying to persuade the voter that their cause or their message is the one to follow or adopt. And is there anything in the the use of those different platforms to the authenticity of the message that's coming out? Like, you know, when you look at something like social media and um, Colin, you mentioned the fact that we've all become propagandists, uh, then you, is there something because of social media that we can do that ourselves? Is it looked at within the sense of, oh, if it's traditional branding, different to if it was social media, is there any contrast in how we what look at it? I think from a, well, there's a few things to say there. I think that, the first thing is that the communications professional will always, we, will always use the technology that's available to them at the time. So if you go back to the 1920s and this kind of birth of radio broadcasting, politicians, corporations are um, um, you know, keen to advance their brand, for use of a better word, on that platform. Same with television, same with the digital age, same with newspapers, go back a few hundred years. So it would be futile of a professional communication uh, a communicator to um, decide that they were going to be prejudiced against one platform or another. The most important thing is to go to where your audience is. And right now your audience is predominantly spending their leisure time or their time not being productive or not at work um, on social media. So you obviously navigate to there. But the secondary part of that question concerns how different media um, interact with our cognitive functions, I guess. Um, there's a lot of evidence that screen-based media, we, we are more passive when we are engaged in screen-based media. So there's a lot more opportunity for subliminal messaging to emerge. So background images, for example, uh, music that can occur. Through, if you're reading something, you tend to be relatively crit critically engaged in actually reading what that thing is. Equally, if you're listening to the radio, you, you can be a bit more uh, tuned in, for, for use of a better word, to it. However, what we see, particularly with 
the, the, the advent of television in the 50s and the 60s and then through to the digital age is much more opportunity for the propagandist to propagate certain messages that are both conscious and subconscious. And what we've also seen is the obviously with the rise of social media, um, we've done some research with young people and they were very much kind of becoming co-creators of that shared content. So they not only were necessarily co commenting on um, posts from parties or candidates or political groups, but they were often tailoring and creating their own um, posts. We often call debranding, trying to kind of take on a different narrative, a different message to counteract that kind of party or brand or, or politician. So there's a lot more in... We're seeing a lot more involvement from um, citizens now, trying to because obviously they've got the tools at their disposal, as Colin was saying, so they can get involved. And you know, it, it's interesting that um, sometimes it can get really heated, as you see, you've probably seen on Twitter, on Facebook, and all these social media platforms. But it's it, it it's sometimes seen as a good thing because at least they're getting in, getting involved, they're they're sharing their kind of concerns, and. Um, yeah, I think it's a good thing for society. Yeah, I mean, you do see that with one of the great um, diversifiers of social media is the two-wayness of the communication that can occur. Most of the time, but it's a newspaper, radio, television, it's a one-to-many communication. However, with social media, you have this ability for feedback and quite strong feedback, as mm. you say, to, uh, to emerge. And this is why political parties and indeed particular candidates um, often employ people as to do what's called community management, which is essentially about trying to prevent particular negative messages from gaining traction upon social media. So, for every, you know, a, a well-followed politician on social media may well have hundred thousand, two hundred thousand followers in in this country, many more perhaps in other countries, and uh, if they tweet something, they post something you've got to expect that perhaps a third of the comments that come back to them are going to be in some way mocking, hmm. negative, satirical, nasty, xenophobic of some sort of kind. And clearly you don't want your message to be diluted by that, by that interaction. Can you remember the 2010 general election with Dead Miliband and his um, kind of um, tombstone kind of pledge to have a... 10 kind of pledges that he would kind of enact if he was in Downing Street on a, on a tablet of stone. And obviously that was then posted on social media, but then everyone kind of got involved creating different pictures, different images. So we had kind of images of kind of, um, you know, biblical kind of references and um, comedy references as well. And it just went viral and and it kind of lost the message. And, and, and I think in the end, um, Labour and Ed Miliband had to kind of Get, destroy that kind of tablet somewhere. It was never seen ever again because the, they thought it was like a, a tombstone or it was kind of a, not the correct symbol, you know, that they... It, it was interesting that because the, the communication strategist behind Miliband's decision to do that, because it wasn't Ed Miliband that thought mm. that one up, mm. was ultimately to, as you say, create a sort of Ten Commandments, <laughs> Ark of the Covenant-esque mm. type document and to sort of relate, ultimately to try and attract the sort of middle-class, church-going, religious aspect who usually vote conservative. Um, so it was an appeal to, 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 to voters who may well be disillusioned with the Conservative Party and it completely backfires <laughs> on them. Isn't it in the same way that when, you know, from, from a, from a non-political point of view, when anybody puts something out to a public vote, so for example, 
what's the name of the new ship that's going to go to the Antarctic? Mm. And everybody said sort of Bo Boaty McBoat face. Mm. Or Justin Bieber asked people where should he play his ne next concert and the, the winning vote was Pyongyang. You know. <laughs> In terms of looking at those that are actually putting this content out there, so, you know, does it mean that we should be or should people be concerned about the intent of those that are doing political branding in that industry, in the industry? I think, no, I wouldn't say no. No, I'd say no, because obviously it's it's all to do with what what is the what is the message, what is the kind of the communication, what is the goal? Is it to persuade and just get your kind of key message across? If it's obviously becoming distorted or there's falsehoods or um, the message is misleading, that's when we should question and we should be concerned. But I think, you know, we'll, the law... We, um, Political parties and candidates have used these tactics for years, like we've said. It's just now it's become out of control in a way, in a sense, because, like I say, more people have control of those different tactics that can be used. Yeah, I think that look, branding is used across a multi multitude of industries and societies, so it would be naive to say that politics should not, should sort of ring fence itself and say, well, we're not going to, to do that. Um, as Chris says, the important thing is to look at the intent of the communicator. Mm -hmm. If the intent of the communicator is to deceive, then we have a problem. Mm. If the intent of the communicator is to, roughly speaking, tell a truth, even if that is a perhaps selective and you know self-interested truth, um, at least there still is uh, an element of truth to be discussed there. But when the, as I say, when the intent of the of the communicator is to deceive, then we 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 move towards a nadir of politics. And we hear about political disengagement. I mean, what, what is it? Well, it comes in different forms. So somebody could be just um, diseng diseng uh, not necessarily engaged um, emotionally, but that they're, they're still involved rationally, or they could be kind of there emotionally, but not rationally, or and that could have an impact on behaviour. So I think it, it's quite a complex area to being disengaged. I remember recently speaking some, again, going back to Jersey, some voters in Jersey, and they were really disengaged chanted and disenfranchised with politics in Jersey, but they said it was their civic duty to always vote and they would vote till the, the day they die. But they were uncomfortable with the situation and they would often describe themselves, I'm still, as, I would describe myself as disenchanted or disengaged. So I think it is a complex term. Um, I think the ones we have to kind of focus on are the ones that either don't vote or have stopped voting and try and understand why that's the case. Because then, obviously, then we can try and build, create strategies and tactics to try and encourage them to to vote in the future. And how important is it for politicians and their parties to be engaged with with the public? And I know, particularly, as a, a lot of conversation around the the younger generations as well. Yeah, I mean, there always is that young person question. I think the, what one of the important things to say here is that you know, um, it's only kind of strange people like Chris and I who who sort of study politics, mm. if you like, or who are interested in politics. For the most part, people become interested in politics through one or two particular issues that become relevant to their lives. So whether it's uh, crime or gender equality issues, you know, housing issues, take whatever it is that, that, that you wish there, environmental issues perhaps as well. So people become interested through issues and then move forward with that and then gain that sort of traction that way. Um, I would say, say that political apathy extends further than just voting. This is people who just sort of generally don't utilise that sense of citizenship that they we, we would argue that they ought to. But it's not necessarily their their fault, so to speak. There's a lot of psychological factors in this. I mean, self-esteem 
is a particular one. So this is one of the reasons that, uh, that um, people from working class backgrounds tend to vote less than people from middle or more affluent backgrounds. Is that sense of, will my vote make a difference? Will, will I actually be able to achieve something in voting? And also, perhaps intentionally, politicians are qu quite keen sometimes to make politics seem quite complicated. Mm. And, and that, I believe, is part of the propaganda mechanism here in that they don't actually uh, enfranchise people through, for example, the school system with political literacy. And therefore, it just all looks confusing, so I'm just not going to bother. And that's what research tells us. They say that young people and, and these people who aren't, like you say, classed as disengaged, they, they want to know more, but they, they're put off by the actual, the language, the terminology used. They feel it's not for them. Or like you say, it's... It, Somebody's told them it's not for them yeah. through, you know, generational, uh, fa family generations not voting. And therefore they're told a repetitive message. And in a recent focus group I conducted not long ago, it was interesting, at the end of the focus group, this, this lady had said to me, this young lady had said that she'd never voted, she had no interest in politics, but at the end of the focus group, she, she said, do you know what, I really feel that I want to get involved and you've inspired me now because I feel that, yeah, politics is relevant and these political issues are relevant to me, uh, but what I want to do is I want the language to be, um, to resonate with me and clearer. And if that was the case, hopefully I will then get involved in future elections and, you know, become a civic you know take part in civic duty on that note what should political parties be doing to engage uh, voters ahead of the next general elections i think they need to spend time under trying to understand why so many people are seen as disengaged or don't get involved and then they can try and build kind of strategies and tactics around that and again it would probably still come back to the points that we've said before about the limited education or the, the, that, that perception that politics isn't for them. But I think just making sure that politics is made relevant and it resonates and, and politicians and political parties are authentic, as you said before, as Colin said before. So I think, I think just being simple, but, but also not coming across as f um, f following the rule book too much in the sense you then you come across as fake or um, you, you've come across as inauthentic or, you know, so it's, it's really, it's a fine balance really, isn't it, if you think about it? Yeah, I mean, and, and there's also a wider issue around the, the education system. Mm. And you can see differentiation between England and Scotland here, where in Scotland, in, in high schools, you have a subject called modern studies, which is essentially about political education. And, you know, many a sociologist or political sociologist has done, so for example, focus groups, and they, they found that usually Scottish people have more political knowledge than English people and are able to actually um, sort of wade through the propaganda of politics in a bit more of a critical fashion than the average English voter. Now, this is not to say that you know, plenty of people in England have lots and lots of political education and, 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 and can see it for, for what it is. However, I think the point here is that you don't have a similar subject in English schools and the question then becomes well why don't you have a subject in English schools and I would argue it's on account of particularly conservative party policy which would rather not have that level of political education because that level of political education particularly in the hands of the working classes is less likely to elect a conservative government so you have some really quite underhand tactics here of ensuring that the public remain 
um, placid, for example. And it's interesting, actually, because uh, the, the government in Jersey are actually trying to do this at the moment, trying to roll out some sort of um, kind of um, independent um, education program, but not only for young voters, but also people who are just moving to the island and, and trying to get people involved that way and engage that way. Other people who have become disengaged have another education platform for them. So I think Jersey's, you know, setting a really good kind of precedence. And I agree with Colin in saying that, you know, in the England, for example, they don't have to have that kind of consistent kind of um, curriculum um, across the uh, across the country where it wouldn't take much to kind of roll that out like an independent um, system that would hopefully kind of educate and and try and engage young voters and hopefully then long term voters. It's an it's interesting question, isn't it? Like, if you're afraid of the voters, if you're afraid of the masses, then the, the simple question is, why are you afraid of the masses? It's likely because you're duplicitous or you're inauthentic in some way in what you're saying, and you're worried about being held to account for it. And whenever you speak to voters, and these are people who've never voted or they're a bit disengaged, they always say it's politics isn't really it doesn't have an impact on my life they can't see that relevance so making that kind of argument um, at an early stage would hopefully like I say then hopefully make sure that they become long-term engaged voters and and then exercise their democratic right I mean the, the example I, I give with my students is to say that you know I'm of an age I think we're all of an age that university was free when we went to university and uh, or at least it was tax pond of uh, taxpayer funded um, whereas now students pay over £9,000 a year and they are leaving university with sizably more debts than we left university in comparison to inflation and so if is that not something to become politicised over and say actually it wasn't that long ago I mean the first £9,000 a year students only came in in 2012 mm. and one of the problems you have particularly with young voters is that 2012 for them was when they were in, like, still in kind of infancy. You know, the, our, our students that have come to us this year were born in sort of 2004. So they're only sort of seven years old when this happens. So that sense of perspective, or particularly historical perspective, mm -hmm. is lacking in them. Whereas for us, we think, well, that's just, you know, not, not so long ago. But it really, really wasn't and, and has a profound effect on their lives. And that's a profoundly political decision that was made. I think it also comes back to the actual wording around it. So again, um, going back to focus groups, when I asked um, young voters, okay, what political issue is important to you? Um, you often get kind of a, a puzzled look or not always kind of get a clear answer. But as soon as you take the word politics out, what issues are important to you? You know, sustainability, education, jobs. And, in, and then obviously you have about an hour's or two hours kind of focus group discussion. And then at the end of it, people would say, hang on, I, I am interested in politics. I, I didn't realise that. Yeah. So it's the, it's the language that we use to try and engage. Yeah, I mean, a very simple question is what, what issues are occurring in your life at the moment, right? Mm. And you go, well, you know, I'm struggling for student accommodation. Okay, that's a political issue. Yeah. I've, got a mental, I've got mental health concerns. Okay, mental health provision is a political issue. Mm. So as you say, it's that sort of word politics if you remove it but also you can say well you shouldn't really have to remove it in the first mm. place because it shouldn't be this daunting word because mm. actually politics is relatively simple once you but I think it, it, it sits on a pedestal and but once you can get onto the pedestal mm. then it, a lot of it can a lot of the complexity collapses around you you can see through it so with, with everything we've talked about uh, today 
what tactics do you think we will see over the, the next kind of running up to the next general elections? Will they be pretty much what we've seen already or is there anything you can... Propaganda always, always tries to flatter the, the voter. So the voters will not necessarily be asked to critically introspect upon their lives and their own contribution to, to, to certain things that may well be unhelpful towards them. So there's usually an element of flattery. Um, you'll often see um, references to the royal family usually come out, uh, you know, in terms of allegiances to that. So, you know, no one's actually going to do anything about the royal family. So it might be, you know, you go to like the, the Labour Party or the Scottish National Party and there's a sizable people who want, sizable proportion of the members who want to, Britain to become a republic. Sizable proportion of the voters usually hovers around 40 to 50%. But nothing will ever happen around that. So there's a distortion there between what the public expectation and what the politicians will actually do. I think we'll still see the traditional kind of politicians kissing babies and visiting car factories and that sort of thing. But um, I think we'll see lots more kind of uh, localised campaigns and um, candidates pushing their local credentials. And, and depending on how popular the party is within each constituency, they'll either be more aligned to the party or less aligned to the party, depending on that loyalty. So we've seen it in previous elections, and I think that will kind of um, carry on in, in future elections, particularly in the UK. What trends are we likely to see over the next couple of years? I think we'll still see like the trends like um, those kind of um, um, slogans that kind of get Brexit done, those kind of short, kind of sharp sound bites to try and appeal to the to, to people who aren't necessarily interested in politics and trying to get, a, get vote, uh, that kind of message out there. And again, these slogans, which are you know often criticised, they're, they're kind of designed as a way to offer kind of instant um, differentiation with their competitors. And so I think we'll see a lot of that. And, uh, you know, you only have to look now between all the different parties that keep rolling out their latest sound bites or latest slogans. Um, but obviously, they're all looking towards the next general election. It's, 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 it's what we're also looking at. It's that long term campaigning now. It's not just like um, we're kind of doing it on a short term thing. It's between now and the next election. It's kind of like a little war footing and uh, everything is geared towards, obviously, election day. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah, I think all those sound bites tend to lead to a sort of dumbing down of politics, though, because how much can you actually explain anything within sort of twenty to thirty seconds in a in something that's contained within a newsreel? So what you often find is the politi politician just says something very very basic, or even something that doesn't make all that much sense um, in one form or another. So I think what we've seen in terms of the, the trends is a is a movement away from manifestos and the discussion of particular policies and more into this realm of identity politics where politicians appeal to, to voters based on how like them they are. And this leads to a kind of wider question in politics as to, well, do you want your politician to be just like you? Perhaps you want your politician to be they're more intelligent than you, and you know somebody who's actually not particularly relatable, but is a very good administrator, and is you know can handle quite a large workload, can deal with the various struggles that it, that, that there are to be a politician. And the idea that you know, the, the question that's usually asked at election time is who you know for in the last election, would you rather go for a pint with Boris Johnson or would you rather go for a pint with Jeremy Corbyn? And the vast majority of people would rather go for a pint with Boris Johnson just for the what will happen <laughs> on, on, on that evening. However, you know, in terms of an actual running a functioning 
dare I say it, um, integral regime, you'd probably say that Jeremy Corbyn is the, the person who would rather, you know, knuckle down and do and do the job. However, what we end up with is a question, I say, around identity politics, not just the identity of the voter in terms of their um, their nationality, their religious persuasion, their sexual orientation, their, their, their race, their gender, whatever, but also this idea of the relatability of the politician. And politicians are so um, anxious to be relatable. And actually, sometimes you have to question, well, as I say, do I actually want my politician to be just like me? Or do I want them to be some, somebody who is at a distance from me in some way? And you can see why they're kind of like pushing the emotional side and the emotional connection with voters rather than the kind of rational approach. And that's why they're kind of relying more on these quick sound bites, these kind of these kind of slogans that sometimes mean very little. You know, um, you know, you have to think back to the uh, last election with the oven baked ready Brexit deal. I can't remember the actual slogan, but you know what I mean? It's or get Brexit done instantly recognisable kind of slogans and and people would latch on to that but then if you ask voters okay what does that actually mean they couldn't explain it same with well even politicians probably couldn't yeah. explain what it actually meant but yeah it, and around brexit the the conservative party kept on using the word dithering so that if if a labor government came in there would be dither hmm. and it was interesting how they were trying to attach that to jeremy corbyn because he was uh, in his 60s, at least, and he was trying to say, well, that was actually a kind of quite a subtle, but quite a rather aggressive ageist comment that they were making about it. And when actually there was not really any evidence of that the Labour Party would have, in inverted commas, dithered any more than the Conservative Party had mm. dithered between 2016 and 2019, or indeed even if that, that was part of the equation. So we see these just little subtle words that are used from time to time, which sometimes seem rather innocuous, but are actually quite uh, malign in, in I mean, what they're trying to achieve. And you've seen it this week in PMQs, you know, um, Rishi Sunak is very much trying to remind voters that um, Keir Starmer was obviously within the shadow cabinet with Jeremy Corbyn, and he wants that kind of message, you know, use that message right up until election day, I think, um, trying to make sure that voters don't forget that they were uh, colleagues. Um, yeah, and, and and you look at even Boris Johnson, and just before he left in the summertime, was trying to link Keir Starmer to Jimmy Savile yes. as well when he mm. when he when he was the director of public prosecutions. Again, that's a that was a nasty little jab mm. in, in, into him. Well. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I think we could obviously talk about this for forever, um, but it's been really interesting. And thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Chris and Colin's research. Take a look at the episode description. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.